I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. And if you do not have a Bible, hopefully you will see one in the seat beside you or the, underneath the seat in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible, please see that as our gift to you this morning. Take that with you. Hebrews chapter 4, as we continue our, our sermon series through uh, the letter to the Hebrews, we have been working through the first few verses of chapter 4, and I'm going to read for us again verses 1 through 11, and specifically this morning we're going to pick up in verse 3, but I want to, to read the, the larger context a little bit here. And so please follow along as I read from God's word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hear the word of the Lord. In verse 3 of what was just read, the author of Hebrews once again is quoting from Psalm 95, verse 11, on which really he has been basing his whole argument going all the way back to chapter 3, verse 7. He's been continually going and taking the original recipients of this letter and us to Psalm 95, they will not enter my rest is kind of the resounding condemnation that fell upon the wilderness generation of the Israelites. And it was for their failure to trust, to have faith in God, that the promises that he had made to them would actually come to fruition, that they would trust him and obey and so we were told in that passage, and this has been repeated several times, they have not entered into his rest. Uh, 
while Psalm 95.11 convicts the wilderness generation for its unfaithfulness, the author of Hebrews uses that passage to reiterate a great theme that we need to hear again and again. Those who believe enter God's rest. Those who believe enter God's rest. Now, you may be thinking, man, I keep hearing you refer again and again to Psalm 95. If you've been with us, we've been going back and thinking about what transpired there in the wilderness generation, what we glean from that, and that's because the author of Hebrews has been doing that. And there has been this repetition. The repetition of Psalm 95, 11 in our passage really should um, not be kind of glossed over, but, but recognized uh, for, for its, its sense of urgency. It's there for a reason, this rep- repetition. When a biblical author repeats something again and again pertaining to a particular issue, it is most likely because a sin-prone people require the need to hear it again and again. We looked at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3 and were reminded of the deceitfulness of sin. We spent some time thinking about that and how we need to be awakened to that reality, to be, um, if you will, like shaken in our chair, even maybe this morning, to the reality of this deceitfulness of sin and the need for other brothers and sisters to exhort us daily, as long as it is called today. And so this repetition of looking back to Psalm 95, I pray the Lord would use for our good, because we are a sin-prone people requiring that type of repetition. Now, as we look at these verses and try to to wrap our minds and our hearts around what the author is saying, I want to read this statement, and I hope that the sermon kind of unpacks this. The reality of a future Sabbath rest is rooted in God's work in creation, in the creation ordinance that he gives. It's restated in the Old Covenant, and it is fulfilled in Christ's work, his death, burial, and resurrection, and remains for all who are united to him by faith. So this idea of rest, entering God's rest, I want to submit to you this morning as we look through chapter 4, this is a future Sabbath rest that, yes, there is an already component But as we are wandering in our own wilderness, so to speak, as we are sojourners and exiles longing for the new heavens and the new earth, there is a a promise, a hope of a future Sabbath rest that is held out to those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And that is actually used, I believe, by God for our good. We, We need the promises of what's to come to help us endure what we're presently experiencing. And so there is much hope in this promise of a future Sabbath Sabbath rest. But in order to understand 
what is, what is available to those who are in Christ, what is coming, um, this, this chapter in, in chapter 4 of Hebrews helps us see that it is rooted in God's work of creation. We see it with the Old Testament people of Israel, and we clearly, most appropriately, see it fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend some time working through this passage and hopefully bringing more clarity by the help of the Spirit to what I've just said. So looking at verses 3 and 4, the end of verse 3 is where we get this introduction to uh, taking us back to Genesis 2, taking us back to God creating. So although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, the end of verse 3, and then into verse 4, for he has said, For he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Here's a question to kind of get us started. What does it mean that God Almighty, who, according to his word, does not slumber nor sleep, rested on the seventh day from all his works? What does that mean? That a God who does not sleep nor slumber rested on the seventh day. So we go back to Genesis chapter 2. It gives us insight into the nature of creation and the Lord's rest. On the seventh day, on his Sabbath, God no longer performed the labors of the preceding six days in which he created all things by his word. It stands for a consummation of a work that is accomplished and the joy and satisfaction attended upon this creation. So God resting on the seventh day actually speaks a lot to us. And I want to kind of scratch the surface a little bit. When God completed his great work, where he refers to it as good and very good, all that happened in the first six days of creation, on the seventh, when it says he rested, God had finished his cosmic construction project and now, in a sense, takes his seat. Now, it's not what we may envision resting because he's tired of his labor and needs it. Rather, this kind of sitting is a, is a, a, a statement of completion, He is satisfied in the work that he has done. Also, the seventh day emphasizes God's enthronement over his cosmic creation. Some refer to, and G.K. Bill has done some, some great work on this, looking at the creation as God creating his his um his cosmic construction project and thinking about the Garden of Eden where he dwells with man and woman in the garden, that, if you can kind of think about this as his his throne. So he's got this cosmic temple, the, the garden, in which he's created, and it is good, it is very good, and he dwells with his people. Bill goes on to explain, God's rest, both at the conclusion of creation and later in Israel's temple, indicates not merely inactivity, but that he has demonstrated his sovereignty over all the forces of chaos. 
He is sovereignly ruling and reigning. That is where I want our minds to go when we think of God resting on the seventh day. Everything that he did was perfect, good, very good, and he has completed it. He is satisfied with his work. There is joy and satisfaction. And think of it this way. He then invites his creation to enjoy his glory. He is seated. He is finished. And in another way, you could see the seventh day as being consecrated to him. Do you remember in the creation story on the seventh day, he, which is different than the other days, he sets it aside as holy. And so you can all, you could really view this as the whole of God's creation is ultimately consecrated to him, set apart. And in all that God created, we are told it was good or very good. And then God bestows this holy set apart for the seventh day. Also to note, as you're thinking about creation, the seventh day, God resting, there is no morning and evening on the seventh day. All the other days had a morning and an evening. And that is speaking something to us. God's rest is eternal, and therefore he will continue to sustain us and creation even to this day. And so what we get from the creation story is a creation ordinance. So God created and then on the seventh day rested, and then he gives this ordinance to Adam and Eve to follow. You work six days and follow this pattern. The gift was meant to be a perpetual reminder of God's masterful work in creation and rule over all of it. And because man is made in the image of God, he should therefore imitate his creator because of the pattern of a six work days and then one day of rest. To kind of bring this together, um, Augustine said it like this, God's rest is a gift for his creatures, and the gift is himself. And so this, this creating for six, resting on the seventh, that rest is more than just this is for you over here to experience. But if we watch the whole story unfold, he is, he is establishing his rule and reign, and then it's an invitation to come and experience his goodness, his glory, his holiness. God continues to uphold all things, and we know as that story continues in Genesis, Adam falls into sin, and so, even with that pattern fixed, God has not set back and is doing no nothing. There's not inactivity in the sense of him continuing to accomplish his purposes, N- not at all. We see that once the fall enters into the world, he began his sovereign work of redemption. The promise first made in Genesis 3.15, and then the, the story of God's progressive revelation being revealed throughout the rest of Scripture, and ultimately culminating upon His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's verses 3 and 4. And then what we see as our passage unfolds is that the Sabbath rest 
was, was made available to all people even after the fall. And so God has made a way for there to still be this invitation to experience his rest. We see as scripture unfolds in the Old, Old Testament, God comes to Abram, if you remember, and makes several promises to him. There's a promise of offspring. There's a promise of, of land. And there's a promise of peace and rest. Again, there is this offer of rest in God for his people. This eventually leads to the Israelites. If you remember how the story progresses, it leads to them becoming slaves in Egypt. And then there's this setting of the great Exodus, where Moses, called by God to deliver his people out of bondage and out of that intense lack of rest during their their bondage, their slavery in Egypt, God brings the Israelites out and gives them or reinstates, formalizes in the law, a weekly day of rest, the Sabbath. God then gives the day of rest with more significance. So there's this progressive revelation. So there's this, you could say, escalation to the understanding of the Sabbath day. You work six, you take the seventh to rest. The day points back to creation, which we see in our passage today. God created and then he rested. But then what we also see is this kind of escalation or uh, um, a progressive revelation that we're now seeing that the Sabbath day also points back to redemption for the people of God. They are to remember what God has done for them in delivering them from the bondage of slavery. And so this rest was was tied together with these ideas. The people were to think about entering God's rest and what God has accomplished in redeeming them from the Egyptians. This rest is also intimately tied to the promised land. There was this promise of once they land in the land of Canaan, once they arrive, they'll experience rest. And so this promise is laid out before them. However, as we see in our, our, our passage this morning, the rest of, that was offered in the promised land, was, they fell short of that because of their sin, because of their disobedience. So I want you to see verses 6 through 9 again in our passage. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. To kind of break this down, we see the, the Israelites in the wilderness, and because of their disobedience, they did not enter the rest. Many, many, many years later, David's writing Psalm 95, and he's calling the people of God to, to repent and to believe and don't be like the wilderness Israelites. And so it's brought, it back, it's brought back to the for, forefront again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But then we're told this interesting Um, truth that Joshua was the one who brought the people into the land. 
Yet, because of their ongoing disobedience and lack of faith, the land in which they thought was going to be the the end all, the final culmination of rest, because of their sin, they did not actually enter it. And so what we're seeing here is that there's still a promised rest to come. And where, where some would say, man, this is kind of discouraging. It kind of almost seems like it's, it keeps getting pushed down the road. When you see the grand plan of God's redemptive story, this is grace upon grace. The people of Israel in the wilderness did not, did not deserve any of God's mercy and grace that was poured out upon them. Their disobedience and their lack of faith actually prohibited them from entering into that rest because of the hardness of their hearts, we're told. And then when Joshua leads the people into Israel, they're in the land. The same pattern of hardness of heart continues, but there's hope laid out in this passage that there is a, a promised uh, a Sabbath rest that still remains for the people of God. And you have to ask, how then is that made possible if we see this rebellion and this hardness of heart from the people of Israel? How is it that there could be one day where the people actually experience God's rest? And this is where we are again reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished in this great plan of redemption. So Joshua was not able to bring them in and provide them the rest. It was still, uh, another day was still to come. And what I want us to do is spend a little bit of time thinking about Christ's fulfillment of this. And what we see as we read through the New Testament is that when, it, when we look at Christ's work, his life, perfect obedience to the Father, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the salvation that he offers, a hermeneutical key that is very helpful in understanding Scripture is that there is an already but not yet component. We've, we've made mention of this um, as we've looked at other passages of Scripture but it's extremely relevant in understanding this promised Sabbath rest to come that is offered to all who repent and believe. This already and not yet. So Christ is the awaited Messiah who was faithful and who did enter God's rest unlike the Israelites. Jesus is the Messiah who brings the salvific rest for his people. These were the things that he actually secured in his first coming. But as you look at God's word, that's not the end of the story. Praise be to God, Christ has promised to return. And so we need to look at what was accomplished in the first coming, the first advent, and what is promised in the second advent, the return of Christ. Now, thinking again, uh, about the Sabbath through the lens of the people of Israel. I want us to just think for just a moment about this. Israel's way of observing the Sabbath, it required a lot of detailed uh, instructions of what you can and what you cannot do. When Christ comes, 
all that we see in those ceremonial and regulative laws pertaining to the Sabbath that was, that was commanded to the people of Israel, all that they experienced was actually pointing forward. And so when Christ comes, he actually fulfills those obligations that was required of them. So Christ's coming fulfills their unique Sabbath commandment. Since he is Israel's Messiah, he accomplished Israel's end-time exodus that they were longing for as they participated in the Sabbath, and he represents true Israel Israel and the end-time temple. All of that finds its culmination and fulfillment in Christ. Christ fulfills all of Israel's types, including that to which Israel, Israel's Sabbath pointed. Okay, so wh- why does that matter? What does the fulfillment of the Sabbath type do to the weekly pattern that God created in the beginning and gave us this creation ordinance? Six days you work and on the seventh you rest. Indeed, the, the very definition of fulfilled, I just want to be real honest here, is hotly debated. What all did Christ fulfill? When we look at the creation ordinance, I want to submit to you that that was not fulfilled. What, what God had commanded the Israelites and their uh, understanding of the Sabbath, what they were called to do, was fulfilled by Christ. So, when we look at the fulfillment of Sabbath typology in the New Testament, this Sabbath rest that is being promised in Hebrews 4 has been inaugurated by Christ, and those who are in Christ experience an already component. But what I want us to see is that what the author of Hebrews is holding out for us is a future promised rest. So yes, there is an already, but there is in Christ still a waiting. Now, why does that matter? Because we are sojourning in a world that is broken, and we will experience suffering, trials, difficulties of various kinds, and we need to understand that this is not the end, that there actually is a promised rest that, yes, we, we experience in a sense in Christ, but there is a, a comprehensive understanding of this full promised Sabbath rest that is to come. So again, the nature and timing of the promised rest in Hebrews 4 is, is really a key area of disagreement within Christendom. There are some who see it fully fulfilled. The already is, is complete in Christ right now. We, as Christians, experience all the, the promised rest that's described in Hebrews 4 already. It's all here. Others see this already and not yet um, hermeneutic or understanding that, yes, there is a reality of rest in Christ now, but there is also a promised Sabbath rest to come. And then there are also those who only see it as strictly future, and there's not actually an experience of it right now. What I'm trying to help us see is the already but not yet reality. Now, the already, I, I, I think it's important for us to, to speak about this a little bit from 
an example from Scripture. So in Matthew chapter 11, this is beautiful that Christ speaks to all people who are burdened in this life. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Without a shadow of doubt, please hear me. That is an invitation. In our union with Christ, if you have repented and received him by faith, there is a rest that is experienced by believers. What do I mean by that? Before coming to Christ, we labor in thinking that our works are what make us right before God, or what we do is what ultimately dictates our eternal standing before a holy and righteous God. Everything is is up to us in this life. We are carrying the burden of of kind of a works-based righteousness. Or you're carrying a burden of just the guilt of sin upon your shoulders. I would say both of those are probably happening. All of that is what you're carrying up to the cross of Calvary. When you repent and believe in Christ and receive him by faith, oh, the guilt is, is removed. The burden is taken off. There is no longer a laboring for our own righteousness to be made right before a holy God. No, no, no. We now stand justified in Christ because of his righteousness, his perfect obedience to the Father. So yes, there is a rest for those who come, who, are, are, who labor and are heavy laden, they come to Christ. That invitation is, is available today. But I believe the author of Hebrews is focused here on the rest to come, the not yet aspect of rest. So I want to draw your attention to verse 10. Verse 10 in Hebrews 4 says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. I think understanding this verse is crucially important to understanding this passage. Some view that as when you come to Christ, you no longer, ha- you no longer work. Your works stop. And in Christ, you experience that that eternal rest, that rest that is offered now. And while I just try to explain there is an already, I actually don't think that that's what this verse is saying at all. When we look at verse 10, the author of Hebrews is connecting what God did in the creation narrative. God created, and what did we hear about his creation? It was good, right? It was very good. And the author of Hebrews in verse 10 is is actually making a connection between our work and God's work. Verse 10, hear it again. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did for his. If this is a future promise held out to the people of God, and what we've been learning about in Hebrews 3 and 4 is that we are called to strive towards that rest, to exhort one another daily. We're on this pilgrimage together. I would submit to you this morning that when you see the works mentioned in verse 10, 
that is actually referring to good works. What we are called to be about while, while we strive and live on this earth. Again, it's, it's important for us to remember the call to Christianity is not throw your hands back and it's all passive and we're not engaged in this. No, no, no. We're actually, we're actually called by God, believe this or not, to be used by him as instruments in his hand to accomplish his purposes as his kingdom expands here on earth, as his glory fulfills the earth to the ends of the earth. He's actually invited us into that work. Okay, so if we are called to live by faith and not by sight, if we are called to obey God's commands, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands, then all of that would be in the category of, of works, not works towards your salvation. No, no, no. We have been justified. We now stand um, but in Christ, counted right because of what he has done. But when you look at verse 10, this is a future rest that is promised, and whoever enters God's rest, when that day comes, we will rest. We will rest from our works just as God rested from his. So again, God's works, were they good? Oh yes. When we are in Christ, does God use even our feeble, sin kind of intertwined works for his glory and others good? Yes, praise be to God that he uses us and calls us to be working working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, working in the, the, the seeking to glorify him in all that we do, whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, we're doing it all for his glory. I want to just encourage you that, that that work is comprehensive, and it's not working towards salvation, but it's laboring as a believer, striving towards that promised rest. And will there be a day where we rest as God rested from his works? Yes, what I see this passage communicating to us is that that is a future held out to us. And so right now, there is in verse 11, this let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Because sin is so deceitful, our tendency is to try, and this is where we, we have to watch ourselves in this exhorting one another, our tendency is to try to do something in order to save ourselves. That will be kind of our default. But we must beat that tendency down. And again and again, look away from self and towards Christ. And so we labor. This is even part of our laboring. This is part of our work. We labor to rid ourselves of self-reliance. So this could be a complicated thing to, to, um, to fully grasp in our Christian life, but there is this call to work, but we know that we're prone to believe that that work is where our trust lies. And so we do this not in isolation, but the let us is an encouragement that this is a community project. And so while we're striving, while we're laboring, while we're, like I mentioned a few weeks back, 
what the Puritan would call holy sweat, why we are laboring to glorify God in all things in our lives, um, pressing towards that goal of promised rest, we need to remind each other that our hope and, and faith is not placed on how we're doing. So we need to actually labor to rid ourselves of self-reliance. So in Christ, please hear this, believers no longer strive for their salvation. We trust in Christ and his finished work. But the striving in verse 11 means to concentrate one's energy on achieving a goal. And this goal is that we would, we would enter finally and fully into God's rest. John Owen writes that the circumstances surrounding our entry into God's rest are similar to those of the first generation that left Egypt. So he again reminds us of the wilderness generation. Just like the Hebrews, we will encounter difficulties such as fear, exhaustion, human enemies, demonic uh, opposition, and various other kinds of persecution that test our faith. Diligent faith, this striving that we're called to be about, is really obedience and faith in what Christ has accomplished. And this is necessary in order to withstand the difficulties that this life brings as we're working towards striving towards entering God's rest. Hear from like the Apostle Paul, for example, Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up, brothers and sisters, there is a future rest, a consummation of all things. The promised rest found in this passage should point believers back to creation, back to Jesus's completed work, and then forward to the consummation of all things and forward to the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. I hope that you've been able to, to follow along with what I've been striving to communicate this morning. I, I want to leave us with just a few thoughts. The resurrection of Christ and the completion yet to come, the return of Christ, are two important reasons why there has been a transformation of the Sabbath as it continues. So you may find yourself this morning sitting here going, hold up, hold up. I hear what you're saying with the creation ordinance of the Sabbath. We saw that God created something. Six days he worked, the seventh he rested. And Mankind, that was a creation ordinance, was to follow that. And I also can track with you that the, the people of Israel were commanded to observe the Sabbath. And for them, it was very specific and detailed with all the ceremonial regulations. But I thought Christ fulfilled that, and so the Sabbath is no longer part of the equation. When we look at the resurrection and this future promise to come, it's not done yet. Yes, Christ has been resurrected, and those who are in Christ have experienced a spiritual resurrection, the new birth. There is still yet a physical resurrection where our souls and our bodies will be once again reunited when Christ returns. 
There will be the day of the judgment and the consummation of all things and the new heavens and the new earth. That is still yet to come. And if this promised rest is still future, we look at the Sabbath and in the new covenant, we actually see that this transformation that has taken place, the the seventh day commemoration of Genesis 2-3 and Israel's Sabbath ordinances are actually transferred to the first day of the week because of Christ's resurrection. We call that the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day, this is a day of commemoration of God's created rest, a celebration that Christ has entered that rest through his death, burial, and resurrection, and that believers have begun to enter that rest. But it is also pointing forward to believers completely entering into this Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. So I I encourage all of us to think long and hard about the resurrection of Christ, the already that is part of our salvation in him, but also the not yet and the promised return of our king and how that should influence our view of the Lord's day. If there is still a second coming of Christ on the horizon, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We are, we are remembering the Lord's death until he comes. Why is the Lord's day a unique day? It is the day that Christ was raised from the dead. And in this new Lord's day, this new day where the people of God worship, My prayer is that you will see it in a more comprehensive light, how meaningful and unique this day actually is for the people of God. What we are actually remembering on this day as we gather as the people of God, that there is still yet a promised Sabbath rest to come. There is the already in Christ and also the not yet. The exhortation given to us in this passage, again, is corporate in nature. And it implies, chapter 4, a future entrance. And the good news of the rest to come for believers is given to us in this passage as a promise. Look again to verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. This is good news if you find yourself this morning outside of Christ. For those in Christ, we're encouraged because whatever this life brings, we know, according to Romans 8, that God is using everything, all things, working them all together for our good. So whatever we're dealing with in this life, even at this very moment, God is working all things together for our good, and there is this hope to come what we long for, we, yes, we experience aspects of this rest and there is, there is this rest to come that is so hope-filled for believers. Outside of Christ, please hear me this morning. There is no rest outside of Christ. You may be going, well, I feel like I'm pretty rest up. I sleep well at night. 
Friend, I am talking about spiritual rest. Outside of Christ, if you don't feel it, you should feel it. The one who created all things, you are in rebellion against because of your sin. You, what is due you, the penalty of that sin, is death, condemnation, eternal separation from God. What is offered, all who labor and are heavy laden, an invitation to Christ who provides the forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life, and true Sabbath rest. May this be the day of salvation. Let us pray. Father, as one of your saints of old, Augustine said so beautifully, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Father, if there are those in this room who maybe are considering what it would look like to to see the creation ordinance of, of rest and applying that even to the new covenant believer, I, I pray that this would not be viewed as burdensome. But in your creation ordinance, you did this for our good. The Sabbath was for us to enjoy you, to rest in you, to acknowledge to the world that yes, there is laboring, but ultimately we need, we are dependent upon the one who created, the one who sustains, the one who provides us hope, the one who we run to as our refuge and strength. Father, I pray that through this text this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, there would be great encouragement and hope in this promised rest to come And Father, that we would, as your people, strive, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall to the same sort of disobedience. By your grace, Father, we pray that we would all experience that eternal rest in Christ, in Christ alone we pray. Amen.